Section 61 of The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Brittany Waring. The Living Animals of the World, Volume 1, Mammals by Charles Lewis Cornish, Editor. Chapter 22 Marsupials and Monotremes by W. Savile Kent, FLS, FZS. Marsupials. With the order of the pouched mammals, we arrive, with the exception of the echidna and platypus next described, at the most simply organized representatives of the mammalian class. In the two forms above named, egg production, after the manner of birds and reptiles, constitutes the only method of propagation. Although among marsupials so rudimentary a method of reproduction is not met with, the young are brought into the world in a far more embryonic condition than occurs among any of the mammalian groups previously enumerated. There is, as a matter of fact, an entire absence of that vascular or blood connection betwixt the parent and young previous to birth, known as placentation, common to all the higher mammals, though certain of the more generalized forms have been recently found to possess a rudiment of such development. In correlation with their abnormally premature birth, it may be observed that a special provision commonly exists for the early nurture of the infant marsupials. In such a form as the kangaroo, for example, the young one is placed, through the instrumentality of its parents' lips, in contact with the food-supplying teat, and to which, for some considerable period, it then becomes inseparably attached. Special muscles exist in connection with the parent's mammary glands for controlling the supply of milk to the young animal, while the respiratory organs of the little creature are temporarily modified in order to ensure unimpeded respiration. The fact of the young in their early life being commonly found thus inseparably adhering to the parent's nipple has given rise to the fallacious but still very widely prevalent idea among the Australian settlers that the embryo marsupial is ushered into the world as a direct outgrowth from the mammary region. At the present day, with the exception of the small group of the American opossums and the selvas, the entire assemblage of marsupials, comprising some 36 genera and 150 species, are, singularly to relate, exclusively found in Australia, New Guinea, and the few neighboring islands recognized by systematic zoologists as pertaining to the Australasian region. What is more, this region of Australasia produces, with some few insignificant exceptions, chiefly rodents, no other indigenous mammals. It is interesting to note that within the limits of this isolated and anciently founded marsupial order, we have an epitome, as it were, of many of the more important groups of an equivalent classificatory value that are included among the higher mammalia previously described. In this relationship, we find in the so-called Tasmanian wolf, the Tasmanian devil, and the native cats, carnivorous and eminently predatory forms whose habits and general conformation are immediately comparable to those of the typical carnivora. The bandicoots, banded anteater, and fascogales recall in a similar manner the higher insectivora. 
In the tree frequenting opossums and phalangers, the external likeness and conformity in habits to the arboreal rodents is notably apparent, several of the species, moreover, possessing a parachute-like flying membrane essentially identical with that which is found in the typical flying squirrels. An example in which the ground-frequenting or burrowing rodents are closely approached is furnished by the Australian wombat, an animal which may be appropriately likened to an overgrown and lethargic marmot. In this form, moreover, the rodent-like character of the dentition is especially noteworthy. The higher, grass-eating mammals find their counterparts in the family group of the kangaroos, in which, in addition to their essentially herbivorous habits, the contour of the head and neck, together with the expressive eyes and large expanding ears, are wonderfully suggested of the various members of the deer family. The cuscuses of New Guinea and the adjacent islands, both in form and habits, somewhat resemble their geographical neighbors, the lorises, belonging to the lemur tribe, compared with which higher mammals, however, they possess the advantage of an eminently serviceable prehensile tail. The Australian koala, or so-called native bear, has been commonly compared by zoologists with the edentate sloths, while in the most recently discovered marsupial, the pouched mole, we have a counterpart in both form and habits of the familiar European species. Finally, in the small American section of the marsupialia, we meet with a type, the so-called yapok, or water opossum, in which the resemblances to an otter, in both aspect and its aquatic habits, are so marked that the animal was originally regarded as a species only of the otter tribe. The character of the marsupium, or pouch, differs materially among the various members of their order. It presents its most conspicuous and normal development in such animals as the kangaroos, wallabies, and the Australian opossums or phalangers. In the Tasmanian wolf and the bandicoots, the pouch opens backwards. In such forms as the fascogale, or pouched mouse, the pouch is reduced to a few rudimentary skin folds, while in the banded anteater, its position is occupied by a mere patch of longer hairs to which the helpless young ones cling. On the same Lucas and non lucendo principle, there is no trace of a pouch in the koala, nor in those smaller species of the American opossums which habitually carry their young upon their back. Even in these pouchless marsupials, however, the peculiar marsupial bones are invariably present, and in all other essential details their accord with the marsupial type of organization and development is fully maintained. The Kangaroos the typical and most familiar member of the marsupial order is the kangaroo, the heraldic mammal of that vast island continent in the South Seas, whose phenomenal advance by leaps and bounds from what scarcely a century since was represented by but a few isolated settlements has been aptly likened to the characteristic progression of this animal. Of kangaroos proper, there are some 24 known species distributed throughout the length and breadth of Australia, extending southwards to Tasmania, and to the north as far as New Guinea, and a few other adjacent islands. In point of size, the great grey kangaroo and the red or woolly species run each other very closely. 
A full-grown male of either species will weigh as much as 200 pounds and measure a little over 5 feet from the tip of the nose to the base of the tail, this latter important member monopolizing another 4 or 4.5 feet. The red or woolly species more especially affects the rocky districts of South and East Australia, while the great grey kind is essentially a plain dweller and widely distributed throughout the grassy plains of the entire Australian continent and also Tasmania. It is to the big males of this species that the titles of boomer, forester, and old man kangaroos are commonly applied by the settlers, and the species with which the popular and exciting sport of a kangaroo hunt, the antipodean substitute for fox hunting, is associated. The pace and staying power of an old man kangaroo are something phenomenal. Our home country foxhounds would have no chance with it. Consequently, a breed of rough-haired greyhounds, known as kangaroo dogs, are specially trained for this sport. A run of 18 miles, with a swim of two in the sea at the finish, and all within the space of two brief crowded hours, is one of the interesting records chronicled. The quarry, when brought to bay, is, moreover, a by no means despicable foe. Erect on its haunches, with its back against a tree, the dogs approach it at their peril, as, with a stroke of its powerful spur-armed hind foot, it will, with facility, disembowel or otherwise fatally maim its assailant. Another favorite refuge of the hunted boomer is a shallow waterhole wherein, wading waist-deep, it calmly awaits its pursuer's onslaught. On the dogs swimming out to the attack, it will seize them with its hand-like forepaws, thrust them under water, and, if the rescue is not speedily effected, literally drown them. Even man, without the aid of firearms, is liable to be worsted in an encounter under these conditions, as is evidenced in the following anecdote. A newly arrived settler from the old country, or more precisely, from the sister island, ignorant of the strength and prowess of the wily marsupial, essayed his maiden kangaroo hunt with only a single dog as company. A fine gray boomer was in due course started, and after an exciting chase was cornered in a waterhole. The dog, rushing after it, was promptly seized and ducked, and Pat, irate at the threatened drowning of his companion, fired but missed his quarry, and thereupon jumped into the waterhole with the intention, as he afterwards avowed, to bait the brains out of the baste with the butt-end of his gun. The kangaroo, however, very soon turned the tables upon Pat. Before he had time to realize the seriousness of the situation, he found himself lifted off his feet and soused and hustled with such vigor that both Pat and his dog most narrowly escaped a watery grave. A couple of neighbors, by good luck passing that way, observed the turmoil and came to the rescue. Between them, they beat off and killed the kangaroo and dragged Pat to land in a half-drowned and almost insensible condition. Pat recovered and vowed, never to meddle with such big beasts again. The doe kangaroos, while of smaller size and possessing much less staying power than their mates, can nevertheless afford a good run for horses and dogs and are commonly known as flyers. When carrying a youngster, or joey, in her pouch, and hard-pressed by the dogs, 
It is a common thing for the parent to abstract her offspring from the pouch with her forepaws and to throw it aside into the bush. The instinct of self-preservation only, by the discharge of hampering impedimenta, is usually ascribed to this act. But it is an open question whether the maternal one of securing a chance of escape for her young while feeling powerless to accomplish it for herself does not more often represent the actual condition of the case. In proportion to the size of its body, the kangaroo yields but a limited amount of meat that is esteemed for food. The tail represents the most highly appreciated portion, since from it can be compounded a soup not only equal to ordinary oxtail, but by gourmands considered so superior that its conservation and export have proved a successful trade enterprise. The loins also are much esteemed for the table, but the hind limbs are hard and coarse, and only appreciated by the native when rations are abnormally short. Steamer composed of kangaroo flesh mixed with slices of ham, represented a standing and very popular dish with the early Australian settlers, but with the rapid disappearance of the animal before the advance of colonization, this one-time common concoction possesses at the present day a greater traditional than actual reputation. The hunting of the kangaroo is conducted on several distinct lines, the method of its pursuit being varied according to whether the animal is required for the primary object of food, for the commercial value of its skin, as a matter of pure sport, or to accomplish its wholesale destruction in consequence of its encroachments on the pasturage required for sheep and cattle grazing. The greatest measure of healthy excitement in hunting the kangaroo from the standpoint of pure sport is no doubt to be obtained when running the marsupial down with horse and hounds in congenial company, as referred to on a previous page. The stalking of the animal single-handed on horseback or on foot, much after the manner of the deer, has also its enthusiastic votaries and calls into play the greatest amount of patience and savoir-faire on the part of the sportsman. It has been affirmed by a Queensland writer, quote, to kill kangaroos with a stalking horse requires the practice of a lifetime, and few new chums have the patience to learn it. It is, in fact, only stockmen, blackfellows, and natives of the bush who can, by this method, expect to make kangaroo shooting pay. End quote. The horse which is successfully employed by experienced bushmen for stalking purposes is specially trained to its work and, walking apparently unconcernedly in the direction of the selected quarry, brings the gunners, if they are experts in the art of keeping themselves well concealed, within easy range. In this manner, two or three kangaroos are not infrequently shot in the same stock, the animals having a tendency, on hearing the report of the gun, but not locating the direction from which it was discharged, to rush about in an aimless manner and, as frequently happens, in the immediate direction of the hidden sportsman. In the good old times, it is recorded that an experienced hand might kill as many as 70 or 80 kangaroos in a day by this stalking method. The marsupials are, at the present date, however, so severely decimated that even in the most favorable settled districts, a bag of from 12 to 20 head must be regarded as exceptional. 
Stalking the kangaroo on foot without the horse's aid is more strongly recommended to those to whom an occasional shot is considered sufficiently remunerative. Taking full advantage of intervening bushes and other indigenous cover, an approach to within a hundred yards or so of the quarry may be usually accomplished, though not quite so easily, perhaps, as might be at first anticipated. It is the habit of the kangaroo to sit up waist-high in the midst of the sun-bleached grass, which corresponds so closely in color with its own hide that unless the animal is silhouetted against the skyline, it readily escapes detection. The conditions under which the kangaroo is obtained for the main purpose of supplying the human commissariat is perhaps most aptly illustrated in connection with its chase as prosecuted by the Australian Aborigines. In Tasmania and the southern Australian states, the primeval man is either extinct or more rare than the kangaroo. In the extreme north and far northwest, however, he still poses as the lord of creation and conducts his hunting expeditions on a lordly scale. The food supply of the Australian native is essentially precarious. Long intervals of short commons are interspersed with brief periods of overabundance in which he indulges his appetite to its fullest bent. A kangaroo drive on native lines represents to the Australian mind one of these last-named superlatively memorable occasions. The entire tribe, men, women, and all capable youths, participate in the sport. Fires are lit by one section of the tribe, according to the direction of the wind, encircling a vast area of the country, while the other section posts itself in detachments in advantageous positions to intercept the terrified marsupials as they fly in the presumed direction of safety to escape the devouring element. Spears and wadis and boomerangs in the hands of the expert natives speedily accomplish a scene of carnage, and the after-feast that follows may perhaps be best left to the imagination of the reader. The encroachments of neighboring natives on the happy hunting grounds that time and custom have conceded to be the sole monopoly of any one particular tribe is most strenuously resented, and constitute one of the commonest sources of their well-nigh perpetual intertribal battles. A kangaroo batu, as carried into practice by European settlers in those few remaining districts where the animal is sufficiently abundant to constitute a pest by its wholesale consumption of the much-prized pasturage, is far more deadly in its results to the unfortunate marsupials. Existing sheep fences, supplemented by a large, suitably enclosed yard, are first specially prepared for the reception of the expected victims. All the settlers, stockmen, and farmhands from the country round are pressed into service and assemble on horseback or on foot at the appointed rendezvous at break of day. A widely spreading cordon of beaters being told off, a systematic drive is then commenced, which results in all the animals being driven towards and collected within the enclosed yard. The culminating scene is one of wholesale slaughter with club and gun. From these batus, none of the unfortunate animals escape, as they are so closely hemmed in. The first record of the existence of the kangaroo, coupled with its characteristic name, is found associated, it is interesting to observe, with the history of one of the earlier voyages of Captain Cook. 
the neighborhood of Cooktown in Queensland claims the honor of supplying the first example of the animal which was brought to Europe and astonished the zoologists of that time by the singularity of its form and reported habits. Captain Cook happened, in July 1770, to be laying up his ship, the Endeavour, for repairs after narrowly escaping total wreck on the neighboring Great Barrier Reef in the estuary of the river subsequently coupled with his ship's name. Foraging parties, dispatched with the object of securing, if possible, fresh meat or game for the replenishment of the ship's well-nigh exhausted larder, returned with reports of a strange creature, of which they subsequently secured specimens. Skins were preserved and brought to England, but it was some little time before the zoological position and affinities of the creature were correctly allocated. By some naturalists, it was regarded as representing a huge species of jerboa, its near relationship to the previously known American opossums being, however, eventually substantiated. The closer acquaintanceship with the peculiar fauna of Australia that followed upon Captain Cook's memorable voyage of discovery along the coastline of that island continent soon familiarized naturalists with many other of the allied species of which the kangaroo constitutes the leading representative. Some considerable amount of obscurity is associated with the prime origin of the animal's almost worldwide title of kangaroo. It is most commonly accepted as representing the native name for the creature in that Queensland district from whence it was first reported by Captain Cook. No later investigations and inquiries have, however, in any way established the correctness of this hypothesis. Those explorers who have made a special study of the dialects and habits of the aboriginal inhabitants entirely failing to elicit anything even remotely coinciding with the name in question. It has, in fact, been reluctantly concluded by one of the most experienced Queensland authorities on these matters that the name originated as a mere miscomprehension of the information elicited from the natives. Verbal communication with the native tribes under the most favorable circumstances is liable to a vast amount of misunderstanding, and where other than linguistic experts are present, it frequently happens that much mongrel or pidgin English gets mixed up with the native terms. Assuming this to have been the case in the present instance, it has been suggested that the name of kangaroo, or kangaroo as it was originally spelt, implied some form of negation of the knowledge which the inquiring white man was seeking to elicit, or, maybe, partly even a phonetic and parrot-like repetition of the constantly recurring query that was doubtless current among the handymen of the Endeavors Commission, such as, Can you tell me this or that concerning the many unfamiliar objects that greeted the eyes of the new arrivals in this strange land? The writer retains a vivid recollection of a closely analogous manner in which the rural inhabitants of Vigo Bay on the Spanish coast appropriated a common phrase used by the crew of the yacht with whom he landed there. Having evidently noted that the two words, I say, prefaced the majority of Jack Tar's speeches, this catchphrase was adopted and applied by them as a greeting and as a reply to almost every interrogation in dumb show or otherwise that was addressed to them. An unknown animal submitted to these rustic salons would doubtless have been dubbed the I Say, and had the land been a new one, say somewhere in the South Seas, that name would probably have stuck to it. 
Applying this interpretation to the kangaroo, and bearing in mind the fondness of the Australian native to duplicate his name words or syllables, for example, wagga wagga, debble debble, and so forth, the kang yu yu, or a closely resembling phonetic expression, would present itself to the native mind as a much more correct rendering of the simpler can you, or kang yu, which he had picked up as a catchphrase from the Endeavour's crew. In the absence, at all events, of any more rational interpretation of the mystery, this one would seem to merit consideration. While the kangaroo is being speedily dethroned from the dominant position it originally occupied in the indigenous Australian fauna, praiseworthy and highly successful attempts have been made to acclimatize this marsupial on British soil. At Tring Park, Lord Rothschild's estate, Woburn Abbey, and elsewhere, troops of these graceful creatures may be seen under conditions of happiness and liberty scarcely inferior to those by which they are environed to their native bush. Of smaller members of the kangaroo family, there are some thirty distinct forms, popularly known in Australia as wallabies, wallaroos, paddy melons, potaroos, kangaroo hares, kangaroo rats, etc. The wallabies, which represent the most important group with regard to their larger size and economic utility, number some 14 or 15 species and are distinguished with relation more especially to their habitats or peculiar structure as rock, brush tail, and spur tail wallabies, etc. Among the rock wallabies, the yellow-footed species from South Australia is undoubtedly one of the handsomest as well as the largest member of its group, the uniform gray characteristic of the majority of its members being in this instance represented by an elegantly striped and banded form, in which the several tints of brown, yellow, black, and white are pleasingly interblended. A very fine example of this wallaby was included in the valuable collection of animals, formerly at Windsor, recently presented to the Zoological Society by His Majesty King Edward, and is now on view at the Regent's Park. The successful stalking of rock wallabies in their native fastnesses entails no mean amount of patience and agility. Although these animals are so abundant in favored localities as to make hard-beaten tracks to and fro betwixt their rock dwellings and their pasture grounds, one may traverse the country in broad daylight without catching a glimpse of a single individual. One species, about the size of a large rabbit, is very plentiful among the rocky, bastion-like hills that border the Ord River, which flows into Cambridge Gulf in western Australia. Efforts to stalk examples in broad daylight proved fruitless, but by sallying out a little before daybreak so as to arrive at their feeding grounds while the light was still dim, the writer succeeded in securing several specimens. Many of these rock wallabies are notable for the length, fine texture, and pleasing tints of their fur, their skins on such account being highly esteemed for the composition of carriage rugs and other furry articles. Of the larger brush or scrub varieties, the species known as the black wallaby is the most familiar form. It is particularly abundant in the southern Australian states and also in Tasmania. Its flesh is excellent eating and, dressed and served up in the orthodox manner of jugged hair, can scarcely be distinguished from that toothsome dish. Some of the smaller species, such as the hare and rat kangaroos, 
or porteroos, are, as their names denote, of no larger dimensions than the familiar rodents from which they are popularly named. Several of these smaller species, including notably the potoroo or kangaroo rat of New South Wales, are addicted to paying marked attention to the settlers' gardens and, being to a large extent root feeders, have acquired a special predilection for the newly planted or more fully matured potato crops. The most abnormal group of the kangaroo family is undoubtedly that of the tree kangaroos, formerly supposed to have been limited in its distribution to the island of New Guinea, but which has within recent years been found to be represented by one or more species in northern Queensland. At the Melbourne Zoo they have been found, except in the coldest weather, to thrive well in the open. A moderate-sized tree with a small fenced-in enclosure around it being admirably suited to their requirements, at the same time providing a most instructive exhibition of their peculiar forms and idiosyncrasies. Seen at its best, however, the tree kangaroo, or boongari, as it is known amongst the Queensland natives, is a most clumsy, melancholy-looking beast, which has apparently found itself up a tree, not as the outcome of its personal predilections, but owing to the force majeure of untoward pressure in the form either of relentlessly persecuting enemies or the failure of its normal terrestrial commissariat. Compared with the graceful and superlatively agile tree-frequenting phalangers, between whom and the ordinary kangaroos it has been sometimes, but erroneously, regarded as representing a connecting link, the Boongari presents a most ungainly contrast. Its climbing powers are of the slowest and most awkward description, the whole of its energies being concentrated on its endeavor to preserve its balance and to retain a tight hold upon the branches of the trees it frequents, and to which it clings with such tenacity, with its long, sharp claws, that it can with difficulty be detached. In its wild state, moreover, these claws can be very effectively used as weapons of defense, and hence the natives, with whom the animal is highly esteemed as an article of food, are careful to give it its quietus with their clubs or waddies before venturing to handle it. The tree kangaroos inhabit the densest parts of the forests, or scrubs, of New Guinea and tropical Queensland, and appear to confine their movements chiefly to the trees of moderate size, or the lower branches only of the taller ones. The species which constitutes the most natural known connecting link between the typical kangaroos and the family of the phalangers next described is the five-toed rat kangaroo, or potoroo. As its name implies, it is a small creature of rat-like aspect and dimensions, and possesses, like a rat, a long, cylindrical, naked, scaly tail. It is the structure of the feet, however, that constitutes the important distinction. In place of the four toes only to the hind limbs, it possesses the full complement of five, and the first toe, moreover, is set farther back, and is opposable for grasping purposes. This animal is from Queensland. End of section 61